0: Alright, fellow fact checkers, we've got a brand new sponsor and I am excited to promote this product. It's Fox & Sons Coffee. Now, Fox & Sons Coffee is a family-owned and operated small business selling whole bean, organically roasted, amazingly good coffee. On their website, Steve, the company's founder, describes how his love of coffee started with special Saturdays with his dad when he was growing up. Steve wants to share his love of coffee with you and the entrepreneurial spirit with his sons. Check out the website, foxinsons.com and take a look at their best offer. A monthly subscription for three bags of coffee with free shipping for $38.89. Also, Steve's been on the show. He's a friend of the show. He follows us on the morning after as well as here on Fact Check This Podcast. Steve is a great dude, great company to support. So go check out Fox & Sons Coffee and get your morning started off right with a bag of delicious Fox & Sons Coffee. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. All right, Fact Check This podcast. And for the next couple episodes, I'm going to hit some uh, not as pleasant or fun topics. I'm going to hit some kind of deep, dark, horrible shit. And without further ado, let's just jump straight into the deep, dark, horrible shit on this first one. Uh, We're going to be talking about when Twitter refused to take down child porn, even as the victim's parents begged for its removal. So the full headline here is, as the censor chief, Vijaya Gade is fired. Read how Twitter had refused to take down child porn, even as victim's parents begged for its removal. On Friday, October 28th, the head of legal policy, trust, and safety at Twitter, Vijaya Gade, was booted out of service by the company's new owner, Elon Musk. Gade, who spent 11 years at the social media giant, had earned the distinction of being the censor chief of Twitter. She was responsible for terminating the Twitter account of U.S. President Donald Trump and killing the Hunter Biden story, which impacted voting in the 2020 U.S. elections. However, during her tenure, Twitter failed to remove videos of child sexual abuse despite repeated requests by the minor victim and his parents. And this is from Eliza Blue. Uh, Check her out all over the place. She's really good on the child trafficking stuff and the the, uh, children being exploited and everything else. Reminder, a 13-year-old minor survivor survivor begged Twitter to remove a video sexually exploiting him. Twitter reviewed the content and said no. They had his government ID showing that he was a minor at the time. The video had over 160,000 views and over 2,000 retweets. The background of the controversy. In 2021, a 17-year-old boy uh, alias John Doe filed a lawsuit against Twitter for not removing two child pornography videos featuring him despite multiple requests to the social media giant. The victim informed us that the videos were shot when he was just 13 years old. He accused Twitter of allowing the dissemination of disturbing videos and profiteering from his traumatic experience. The teen had alleged that that sex traffickers posing as a 16-year-old female classmate had lured him for a chat on Snapchat. After exchanging nude photos with the traffickers, he was subjected to blackmail. And this is again from Eliza Blue on her Twitter. The Department of Homeland Security had to step in to get Twitter to remove the video. Twitter refused to take responsibility and the lawsuit headed to the US Ninth Circuit Court. How bad does it have to get? asked Fareed, the Berkeley professor. A quote from the professor who designed the tech that Twitter currently uses to detect and remove child sexual abuse material. Even he is in shock. And there's another article from SF Examiner, um, which goes into more detail on this stuff. Uh, so for, I'll include the link to that as well for anybody who wants to to check that out too. Like there's too much information on this stuff. This stuff is happening way too frequently, and we're gonna get into that more after after this article. Um, the accused had coerced him into sending more graphically, uh, more sexually graphic images and videos by threatening to send the nude images to his pastor, coach, and parents. The victim was made to include another child in sexual acts. Eventually, he mustered the courage to block the traffickers. Later in 2019, the videos of his abuse surfaced on Twitter. They were reported several times to the moderation team, which refused to take them down. Meanwhile, the victim was subjected to bullying and harassment by his classmates over the child abuse videos. After several requests, Twitter responded to the victim and claimed that the two videos were not in violation of the company's policies. By then, the videos were watched over 1.67... I'm not sure what that is. 1,000 users uh, and retweeted over... 2.2 2.2 thousand times oh um anyway it was only after a formal complaint to the department of Homeland security that twitter acted against the user that posted the videos in august of 2020 the verge reported how twitter was planning to start a subscription model for adult content creators along the lines of OnlyFans. at that time a team of 84 twitter employees pointed out how the social giant uh, social media giant lacked tools to identify potentially harmful sexual content. Twitter cannot accurately detect child sexual exploitation and non-consensual nudity at scale, they concluded. Interestingly, the social media giant was quick to terminate the accounts of those individuals who questioned the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccine, vaccines and the mainstream narrative about the pandemic. Another uh, couple tweets from Eliza Blue, this child abuse uh, this child abuser had a Twitter account for four years. He posted child sexual abuse material on the main feed of Twitter. He would sometimes pay minor victims80 dollars. He had two ninety thousand when he was caught in June of 2022 and there's a link to an article from the blaze that has all of the information on that. Uh, like I said, I'll include all of these links if you want to go look at it like this stuff is way 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 too frequent. This individual made 8,000 selling child sexual exploitation material on Twitter. Some of the videos were of minor survivors crying and begging not to be exploited. Over 40-plus minor male survivors, and he recently pled guilty. Human trafficking survivor advocate Eliza has documented several cases where Twitter failed to protect minor victims of child abuse. These are the people that have been running Twitter. These are the people that have been removing tweets where you say mean things or you question the efficacy of a shot or you question the narrative around wearing a certain thing over your face or you try to say hey maybe this hunter biden laptop thing has some teeth and you should be looking into it these are the people that have been removing accounts for all of that but they have allowed these huge accounts to just keep pushing this stuff and do nothing about it until they finally get cornered with the human, uh, or with the uh, the State Department having to step in. Uh, these are the people who are being let go from Twitter right now. Thank God. Thank God. In May of last year, a Russian court fined Twitter for failing to delete illegal content, including posts related to child pornography, drug abuse information, and calls for minors to commit suicide, which was highlighted by the telecom regulator Roskomnadzor. With Gaddy's ouster and Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, users are looking forward to drastic changes in moderation policy and prevention of dissemination of child pornography on social media platforms. And that's something that seems to be happening currently is that they're starting to kind of retool the way they go about censorship on certain things on Twitter. And instead of removing people for saying things that are not necessarily uh, follow the prescribed corporate narrative, They're actually going after things that are legitimately illegal and should be taken down. So hopefully that'll continue. Uh, And we're going to get into another article. This one is from The Atlantic. And it kind of highlights some more of like what's going on in America right now where a lot of this stuff is concerned. And and then I'm going to kind of get into some of my own thoughts on it. Uh, how to fix America's child pornography crisis. And a lot of people don't even realize that there is legitimately a crisis going on with this. Like uh, we tend to live mostly sheltered lives when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Like, unless you have been an actual uh, victim of something like this, like you probably don't have any idea how prevalent it really is. Uh, Same with the sex trafficking and stuff like that. Like people talk about it, but nobody really seems to understand like just what's going on, and you would think that people would start asking more questions after the whole Epstein Island thing, but nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to ask any questions about that, mostly because if you do ask the wrong questions about that or talk too much about that, then, you know, uh, you end up with the cameras turned off in your cell late at nine or something. Uh, the country could do much more to control this scourge, and it could do it without violating the First Amendment. I don't. I don't see how this is a First Amendment. How child pornogra- pornography is a First Amendment thing? I, that's I'm pretty sure the founding fathers believed in black and white, right and wrong, good and evil, and there were some things that were not intended to. It, it's the uh, settled the the letter of the rule, not the spirit of the rule. I think that's where uh, there should be some room for distinguishing. America is in the grips of two kinds of child pornography problems. The first involves the production of child pornography itself, the abuse of children, photograph, film, and monetize. And the second involves the remarkably early age at which children are now exposed to pornography when they start to see images that shape their minds and hearts. This is from The Atlantic. Keep that in mind. This is from The Atlantic. And this is not an old article. This is from September of 2022. So let that sink in. Both have profound costs. The terrible toll of child sexual abuse requires little explanation. Many girls and boys who have survived and carry the consequences for a lifetime and become the almost endless ability and because of the almost endless ability of porn consumers to find, download and upload the same images, survivors can be traumatized again and again. The consequences of childhood sexual exposure, while in no way comparable to the trauma of these, those exploited, are also becoming clear. Women and men are reporting that their relationships are twisted and distorted by early exposure to porn, and that's contributing to an immense amount of pain, exploitation, and heartbreak. But our nation doesn't have to consent to child ex- sexual exploitation or child sexual exposure as terrible, as, as terrible but inevitable costs of freedom. Our culture and our government possess tools to deal with these problems. And those tools are consistent with the First Amendment. The challenge is in doing so with enough creativity and pugnacity to take on a ubiquitous, resilient industry. Child sexual abuse may be almost universally reviled, but it is also widely consumed, including on some mainstream porn websites. A survey of recent media investigations revealed that some rather staggering scandals, Investigations of the popular porn sites OnlyFans and hamster have uncovered thoroughly inadequate controls on child pornography. A Twitter plan to allow users to sell OnlyFans-style porn subscriptions floundered when an internal study determined that Twitter cannot accurately detect child sexual exploitation and non-consensual nudity at scale. Most notably, in 2020, the New York Times' Nick Kristoff wrote a searing story called The Children of Pornhub that highlighted how remarkably easy it was to find child pornography on Pornhub and described the high cost of abuse to the young girls who survived it. More recently, one of the young women Kristoff profiled, Serena Filaitis, filed a lawsuit against MindGeek, the company that owns Pornhub, and Visa, claiming that both companies had violated the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which grants trafficking victims a private right of action against traffickers and against beneficiaries of trafficking ventures, by knowingly taking part in the monetization of child porn. Flightist's allegations make for tough reading. MindGeek, she claims, employed a bare-bones team of as few as six but never more than 30 untrained minimum wage contractors to monitor the millions of daily uploads. Even more alarming, she alleged that the moderators were paid bonuses based on the number of posts they approved, not the number of posts they rejected. As the judge in her case noted, such an incentive structure suggests that content moderation was not the goal. Using children to make porn is plainly abusive. Permitted children to see porn may not create the same kind of trauma, but it has profound negative effects nonetheless. Last September, Michelle Goldberg wrote an important column for the New York Times that contained this exchange from the feminist philosopher Amia Srivanas book The Right to Sex. In a class at the University of Oxford, Srinvanas writes that she could uh, she writes, she asked, could it be that pornography doesn't merely depict the subordination of women, but actually makes it real. Her students said yes. Srivanan asked a follow-up, does porn bear responsibility for the objectification of women, for the marginalization of women, and for sexual violence against women? And according to Srivanan, they said yes to all of it. Pornography is warping the minds and hearts of young men, as many writers both here at The Atlantic and elsewhere across our country have noted. It can create wildly unrealistic expectations of sexual performance, and in the worst case, it can lead men to believe that women expect or even enjoy degrading or violent sexual practices. Young women already know this. They need only look at their experience and the experience of their friends. It's easy to see why porn can have this effect, especially on young minds. Many porn sites are full of depictions of domination and abusing behavior. A survey of news reports and court documents detailing the contents of porn sites reveals much of it is disturbing. Barely legal videos are deliberately filmed to make it appear as if grown men are having sex with young teens, and many of the allegedly barely legal videos aren't legal at all. Videos depicting real or simulated sex and assault proliferate on, online, and even pornography that, depic- that clearly depicts adults consenting performers portray sex that is utterly alien from the experiences of most couples. Moreover, the cost of por- porn are not borne only by women, though women are the principal victims of a form of entertainment that seems virtually lab-engineered to attract the male gaze. Many young men don't have the slightest clue as to what normal sexual activity looks like, and they feel the pressure to perform like the performers they've watched for years. They expect women to like what female porn stars seem to like, and thus they place impossible expectations on themselves and their partners. A memorable 2018 Atlantic cover story on America's sex recession, The Decline of Young People Having Sex, discussed widespread availability of pornography as one of the culprits. Young men are replacing sexual intimacy with masturbation, and that is resulting in a cascade of negative academic, social, and sexual consequences. And this is something that Pete and I talked about when we talked about the Nazi book burnings and stuff that was was proliferated through all of Weimar and German culture at that time. Porn was readily available. It was something that was widespread, very common. Same thing for... The fall of the Roman Empire. If you look at that, like pornographic material, stuff like that. Not obviously, it's not on the same uh, scale as what we see today. The same for Weimar, but it's the same theme. Like it was pornographic, uh, pornographic in nature. It was that type of stuff was widely popular and widely um, available during the. The peak and then fall of the Roman Empire. So like this, these, these things tend to, uh, like we've said before, like history doesn't, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. And you see a lot of these same, uh, a lot of these same themes pop up over and over again throughout history as we look at, as we look at the decline of civilization and culture. Yeah, that's far from the only cost of early male exposure to pornography. In many cases, it starts a process of character deformation in teen boys. Because parents disapprove of their kids viewing porn, boys learn to cover their tracks. Some grow practiced in deception, and they carry this pattern of deception into adult relationships, where they shield porn habits from their partner. Countless marriages have been rocked by revelations that the husband watches pornography secretly and compulsively. In many of those cases, it's not just the pornography that wounds the spouse. It's the deception. Thus, here we are In 2022 with a growing bipartisan, secular, and religious consensus that both childhood sexual abuse and childhood sexual exposure are creating or contributing to a series of cultural crises. And that leads us to a question, what can be done? There is no substitute for parental vigilance, of course, but talk to even the most diligent parents and you'll learn that they often feel helpless for good reason. There are so many methods for avoiding parental controls, especially when many children are far more tech savvy than their parents the parents despair of shielding their children from images they simply shouldn't see. Moreover, maximalist legal positions such as banning pornography altogether will go nowhere for the simple reason that even if political majorities wanted to ban porn, the First Amendment wouldn't permit it. We know this because they've already tried. In the early 80s, an effort to ban porn grew out of an unusual long-standing consensus between religious conservatives and progressive feminists on this issue. Many religious conservatives have always viewed pornography as inherently immoral. A number of second-wave feminists, led by Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, also viewed this as discriminatory. Porn, they argued, exploited and subjugated women. And so, in a little-remembered episode of American Legal History, McKinnon and Dworkin worked with social conservatives in the city of Indianapolis to write an ordinance that banned porn. Pornography, the ordinance stated, is a systematic practice of exploitation and subordination based on sex, which in, or which differentially harms women, it was deemed central in creating and maintaining sex as a basis for discrimination. The legal theory was creative; it tied pornography to then nascent legal doctrines, expanding definitions of sex discrimination. But it got wiped out in a court. A federal trial judge struck it down. Then the court, the federal court of appeals for the seventh circuit struck it down, with Judge Frank Easterbrook writing the majority opinion. Then. Lest there be any doubt of the outcome, the 1986 Supreme Court summarily affirmed the Seventh Circuit without full briefing and without oral argument. 11 years later, Supreme, the Supreme Court made its point yet again. The Communications Decency Act, written at the dawn of the internet, tried to regulate children's access to porn by criminalizing the knowing, sending, or displaying of certain kinds of pornographic images to a person under 18. In Reno versus the ACLU, The Supreme Court struck down the law's age provisions, noting that there were a number of technical challenges to requiring age screening and that age limitations must inevitably curtail the significant amount of adult communication on the Internet. In other words, the burdens placed on websites to police the ages of their users would necessarily suppress the expression of constitutionally protected speech among young adults or among adults, period. Between the two cases, the legal difficulties were clear. First, outright bans on porn won't survive constitutional review, and second, even otherwise constitutional age restrictions, children's do not possess a constitutional right to view porn, won't pass judicial review if the cost of compliance excessively burdens protected speech by adults to adults. This l- case law does not render our culture or our government helpless. Companies such as Visa, MasterCard, and Discover could choose to block consumers from using their credit cards to make purchases on Pornhub, as they did after Kristoff's story was published in the Times. Visa later reinstated payments on MindGeek sites after, uh, that it said offer professionally produced adult studio content that is subject to requirements designed to ensure compliance with the law. Master MasterCard also announced that it would require clear, unambiguous, and documented consent from all people depicted in pornographic content on all adult sites that use it for payment processing. Each and every company that helps monetize pornographic content, including each and every major credit card company, should impose the same rule. For those who've read about activist corporate overreach, remember that sharing child pornography, revenge porn, or other sex abuse material is not a constitutionally protected activity, and indeed is already prohibited by a number of federal or state criminal and civil statutes. All of this is to say that corporate action to demand accountability and responsibility from pornographic websites isn't suppressing legal commercial activity. It's deterring the intentional and negligent distribution of illegal images. There's now an additional legal incentive for credit card companies and other financial services companies to impose strict standards on porn sites. In July, a federal district court judge refused to dismiss uh, Serena Fleitz's Lawsuit against MindGeek and Visa. The court noted that the emotional trauma that the plaintiff suffered flows directly from MindGeek's monetization of her videos and the, the steps that MindGeek took to maximize that monetization. Moreover, the court deca- detailed MindGeek's astonishingly, astonishingly strong response after Visa's reaction to Kristoff's story, which included removing 10 million videos from Pornhub. So as soon as the money got involved and Visa said, no, no, we're not going to allow payments to be made to your website anymore. Then they stepped in and started looking for stuff and started removing stuff. MindGeek was far more responsive to Visa than it allegedly was to even victims who complained about abusive materials on its sites. Shortly after the ruling, Visa and MasterCard suspended the use of their cards for ad purchases on MindGeek and Pornhub. Visa CEO and Chairman Al Kelly said that the company strongly disagreed with the court's ruling, but it created new uncertainty about the role of MindGeek's advertising and that Visa cards can't be used to purchase advertising on any MindGeek accounts. This should be the beginning, not the end, of corporate responsibility. Financial services companies should choose to do business only with those entities that rigorously age-gate their content the United Kingdom is currently considering imposing a legal obligation on porn providers to block minors from their sites. The British government doesn't operate under the same kind of constitutional free speech constraints as the American government does, and so it has a greater legal freedom to impose restrictions on the porn industry. But that doesn't mean that American private actors can't learn from the British model, nor does it mean that American governments should rule out making another attempt to technically feasible age gating. The Supreme Court's prior decisions depended a great deal on the technical impossibility of age-gating without substantially burdening adults' access to constitutionally protected material. They did not grant minors a constitutional right of access to pornography. Thus, the question of age-gating may well be every bit as technical as it is legal. Ease the technical challenge, and you'll likely cross the constitutional hurdle. There is something that I wanted to kind of stop and and interject on with this part before I uh, finish up the article. It's not a whole lot left. I'm not opposed to like a Visa, MasterCard, so on and so forth saying that they won't allow you to purchase certain content, specifically where this is involved. But of course, that sets up the potential for the slippery slope of, well, then what's to stop Visa and MasterCard and so on and so forth from preventing you from using their cards to purchase guns or ammunition or any number of a variety of things that you may want that are also constitutionally protected. and i don't really know what the good answer to that is except that in the cases of purchasing firearms and and ammunition and stuff like that the companies themselves are not involved in anything illegal and i know the left is trying to bastardize that as well but the companies that you're buying the firearm from are not actively engaged in illegal activities. They're not like Pornhub and these others. They're not deliberately profiting off of minors. They're you know these companies are not deliberately profiting off of murder or crime or whatever. Whereas in the case of the porn industry they are very deliberately so i mean you saw it with the the incentive structure for moderation that was going on with Pornhub that we talked about before Like mean, they were the moderators were being incentivized to push stuff through and post things and approve things not to actually look for uh explicitly illegal content and get rid of that and and remove that so I guess that's where the and then it, it it would be very subjective at that point, but like that's that's where you have to start kind of splitting atoms on this and getting down to like brass tacks of this is one thing that is very explicitly illegal, and the company that is uh, profiteering off of it knows that the thing is there, that it's illegal, and they're profiteering it or they're profiting off of it anyway. Whereas for, like, the gun companies or the companies that sell the guns, like, their explicit purpose is not to, for crime and murder. Their purpose is to produce guns. Uh, and none of the guns that they're producing are illegal. It's what's being done with them that's illegal. Whereas the pornography itself, that is what's illegal. So that's I think that's an important place to to look at that because I, I do get, like, the, the libertarian... Uh, approach on that is like well if you make it illegal for them for or if you say visa can't or won't allow people to buy porn from porn and buy you know underage sex tapes and stuff then they could just also not allow you to buy all of these other things and i mean you have to start somewhere and there are ways to get guns just like there are ways to get to know the shit, too. But, I mean, you know, there are ways to work around that. Uh, something needs to be done. I don't know. In addition, as Flatus's case indicates, the prospect of using private rights of action to inhibit irresponsible conduct remains. In fact, as of October 1st, victims of the unauthorized dissemination of private intimate images of both adults and children will have access to a new federal civil cause of action. Another model for limiting online pornography's reach while respecting constitutional constraints exists, and it comes from decades of legislative efforts to mitigate the effects of offline porn. Beginning in the 70s, courts began empowering local governments to regulate the locations of adult businesses through the secondary effects doctrine. For example, in a Young versus American mini theaters, the Supreme Court upheld a Detroit anti skid row ordinance, which prohibited adult businesses from being located close together in the same neighborhood. Writing for the majority, Justice John Paul Stevens noted that the city had concluded that a concentration of adult movie theaters caused the area to deteriorate and become a focus of crime, effects which are not attributable. attributable, attributable Jesus, do I don't, can't, can I not say that word? Effects which are not attributable to theaters showing other types of films. It is this secondary effect which these zoning ordinances attempted to avoid, not the dissemination of offensive speech. So using creative ways of uh, zoning out this stuff helps to kind of mitigate it. In 1986, the court reaffirmed this reasoning in the city of Renton versus Playtime Theaters, which upheld a city zoning ordinance that prevented adult businesses from locating within a thousand feet of any residential zone, single or multiple family dwelling, church, park, or school. Each of these prohibited areas represented places where children live, learn, and pray. And then all you got to do is zone schools and churches and parks everywhere else and push them out entirely. There's no doubt that secondary effects doctrine has burdened the adult entertainment industry. It has not, however, come close to prohibiting it. Similarly, internet regulation aimed at the secondary effects of adult entertainment, accessibility by children, and the inclusion of abusive material should be constitutional, even if it imposes additional burdens on porn sites, as long as those burdens do not are not so onerous that they, to quote Reno versus ACLU, curtail a significant amount of adult communication online. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar business that profits directly both from child abuse and from the sales of sexual images to young children. Child sex abuse destroys lives. Childhood sexual exposure has warped the marriages and intimate relationships of an entire generation of Americans. It is not too much to ask American culture, American corporations, and American governments to respond. The Constitution does not require us to sacrifice childhood innocence on the altar of adult lust. It's interesting that this comes from the Atlantic. Because the Atlantic has been a champion of many things on the left, including child drag ships or uh, drag queen story hours or stuff of that nature. These These things that are sexually explicit and are showing trans women performing sexual things of a sexual nature specifically targeted for children. When is the left going to apply this to that? Oh, wait, they don't. They only care about it when it's something that's creating a stir when it's something that can be used for like women's rights or, or something like that. But then they refuse to define what a woman is and go back to pushing for drag queen story hour and these trans strip shows with children involved. This is the hypocrisy of the left. And it's, it's useless to talk about the left being hip hip hip. Uh, hypocritical because they don't fucking care. But this is the kind of stuff that we need to use as weapons against them. Be like, look, if you actually believe this, if you actually believe that child sex trafficking and child pornography and children being exposed to child pornography and just regular pornography are actually bad things, then you need to look at this, these things that you are encouraging and promoting, and apply that in the same way because they are every bit as bad, if not worse. It is warping the minds of children. This stuff is a fundamental evil. And we need to be doing everything in our power to snuff it out completely. Like, mean, whatever it takes, uh, by any means necessary, to to quote Pete's Substack, whatever it takes, we... We have to snuff this shit out. We have to root it up out of our culture and get rid of it because it is destructive to civilization. And that has been proven out time and time again over literal centuries. Stuff is scary shit. Good parenting is got to be at the top of the list of ways to prevent this stuff. The ways of taking care of this stuff i mean why aren't the parents being held accountable for the kids who are participating in this stuff why aren't the parents being held accountable for putting their kids in these situations hold parents accountable Pull this stuff up by the root and get it out of society uh, I mean, it starts at home. We have to, we have to be vigilant about this stuff. And have these hard conversations. That's that's another problem that parents don't want to have hard conversations with their kids. And I, I mean, I get it. I don't want to have hard conversations with my kids any more than anybody else does. But but I do it, and it's it's unpleasant, and and we get through it. And, and I, I try to teach my kids, not just lecture my kids, like have a conversation about this sort of stuff. And, get mutual understanding on what we're looking at and what we're talking about and what, what's going on because this stuff like parenting is going to be the key to moving forward and, and and fixing what's broken in society. And this is a huge thing that's broken in society and it's fucked up on so many levels. Check out all these articles that I'm going to post with this. It's it's a whole lot of shit, but man, I I don't think people have any idea how bad it really is. And people need to know how bad it is because it is, this is something, this is a thing that could be like a watershed type of thing. That if you talk about this stuff on an election trail, on a campaign trail, and you use this as a weapon against the left to be like, look, these are all of the things. These are the stats. These are like, this is what's going on. While y'all push for drag queen story hour. And sex shows that kids are participating in with their parents watching watching this trans strip shows and shit like this. This is what you're doing to our children. This is what you're doing to our society. If this was weaponized against the left, they would never win another fucking election. I think even their base would turn against them if they started to see what's going on with this shit. And that's what's got to happen. You have to weaponize this stuff against the people who are promoting it, the people who are participating in it, the people who are actively a part of the. And I'm not throwing out any accusations. I'm just saying. Hope you learned something from this. Hope you get something useful out of these articles. And I hope you're ready for some more because the next uh the next episode is not going to be a whole lot more pleasant than this was so um, like i said we're deep digging into some deep dark shit for the next couple weeks it's not going to be a whole lot of fun but it is going to be very educational and hopefully it opens a lot of eyes to just how bad shit's getting and just how bad it's probably gonna get thank you Everybody for joining me today, be sure to tune in next time and check out all of our great sponsors, and I will see you later. Don't forget to head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check out our longest and most favorite sponsor, Carlos Vanessa Ablar and Paloma Verde CBD. Get all of your CBD needs, and you get 10% off your order of $75 or more. Plus, anything over $75 is free shipping. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com to get all your CBD needs. Have a good week, everybody.